Welcome to the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark and Lucy Dallas, the TLS's arts editor, is here with me and it's the holidays. So while you're all digesting your mountains of mince pies and playing with your train sets, we've put together some of our favourite bits from the last few months. Back in September, we were delighted to welcome the novelist Anne Enright to the show to talk about her novel The Wren, the Wren, a portrait of three generations of a family. You're always so good, Anne, at those wrong-footing, tiny, tiny details and a bit that stuck with me in the moment that we see that he's leaving her as she's sick. She's lying in bed, he's looking for his watch in her sickbed and his two daughters are there. But that moment that he runs off to the bus stop which is a typical moment of his leaving, you say. And he snatches up a buttonhole from someone else's garden to enrage the neighbours. And I thought, well, that's such an interesting detail because he's being a sort of showman in a way there. He's aware of the world looking at him and judging him, perhaps. And he just does something sort of flippant, really, and pleasurable and sensual at a moment of terrible distress for everybody else. So he's very complex, isn't he? It is complicated. He doesn't pluck the buttonhole. That's what he does usually. So when he leaves the house on that occasion, they don't, all they can sense is the air coming through the door of the house to say that he, so they don't actually see him pluck a buttonhole. But that insouciance is part of the idea of being a poet for him. It's just a man walking the road. It's about freedom. And art is often styled as being about freedom. And domesticity was in those days styled as being a trap. So yes, you couldn't be domestic and a poet at the same time. That was a contradiction in terms by the lights of the time and the mores of the time. Yes. Yeah, his work declines. He, he's, he has a few early books that are well received and then he gets married and his work declines. He can't do it anymore. It's getting in his way somehow. And that, that was like a truism for years, for decades. That you can't be free and in a relationship at the same time. You can't be, you know, you can't be artistically or creative free, creatively free, if particularly you're burdened by, by women or family. I mean, it's not true, though, is it? This is the thing that we're, you know, perhaps belatedly realising that there are many people who live a domestic life and create art. And many of those people are women. Well, I think one of the problems of the genius as the anti-bourgeois figure, you know, had to do with the rise of the middle class in the first instance. Yes, it's that idea that home is a kind of essentially a sort of conservative, excluding of the world kind of thing, something that you will yeah, gather to you. Yeah, so, you know, uh, Victorian and Edwardian England had its bohemia, a space where people could actually have a lot of money and be sexually more mobile. <laughs> then, <laughs> That's then, a nice way of putting it. <laughs> then was allowed to the, you know, the family man, because there are many of them men. So genius was seen as something, you know, all these words like inspired or demonic or, you know, all of these things are are almost religious and they're outside of, of those uh, more material kind of domestic class concerns. We needed these figures to be like prophets or to be to be separate from from ordinary stuff. Or they felt it. So it's all a grandiosity, really, isn't it? Yeah. But it's social as well. So I think it's also socially determined. So the discovery that people had that they could, for example, have children and also have books, that was new. I mean, that's quite recent, you know. 
Yeah. And as you say, it was discovering that women can do it too. Hey, women are allowed to do it. <laughs> it turns e- out even more recent. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. There, there was a generation of women like Doris Lessing who left their family because in order to create. And then slowly you kind of maybe compartmentalize. <laughs> Is that the word? Is that if you say no, that's that you can be free in your creativity without leaving your room. And where is your room? These are, does it have to be somewhere not in a bourgeois house? These are kind of false constrictions you're putting on yourself. Mm -hmm. Can I go back to something you said about the poetry and and nature in it? I wanted to ask you about animals in the book because they feel very important. There's some very intense moments with them. And a lot of it, it's about how we kind of project things onto the animals and kind of what we do with them. But they're very meaningful points of contact they're certainly meaningful for the humans anyway aren't they and right at the end that kind of transcends yeah I'd have to kind of look back and and check on what you're saying Lucy because yeah one of the kind of things on my cork board was um Blake's Adam names the animals so at the end of the book there is a renunciation of those names you know sort of handing the names back or letting the names fall away and letting the animals be themselves I suppose in Phil's the chapter about Phil, there is a very intense, there's a badger, there's a badger baiting thing, which is very intense and very brutal. And I'm trying to think what else. So there's all the birds. Well, a lot of birds. Yeah, they, of feel, the like, they feel like yeah. luck and freedom and beauty and the incidental. Yeah. And the dog who helps Nell. Oh, there are dogs. Oh, there are dogs. Yes, thank you. <laughs> I'm so glad you saw the dog that helped Nell because... Uh, yeah, somebody said, oh, she just goes off on her travels and that's what fixes her. But no, there's first of all, there's a no. dog. Yes. Um, and I put that nice dog in because I had some terrible, terrible figures of dogs in the early. Not the dogs are terrible. I had terrible tragedies affecting dogs in the early. I mean, just, just awful. I mean, and I thought, OK, I need to balance out the dogs here. You needed a redemptive dog moment. But she, I really did. Oh, gosh. Lucy, you see, the the dog, I have to, because I really feel I've read this novel closely and enormously admiringly, and the dog has kind of passed me by. But you, Lucy, are a dog owner. I'm a dog owner. And, well, I was really struck by all the use of animals, actually. But it's very lovely because when she goes there, Nell goes to look after the dog doesn't she because she needs she needs somewhere to go Suki the golden doodle but at the beginning you don't know that she just says there's a big mass of hair and a pair of eyes and she goes oddly indifferent friendly but oddly indifferent I don't know if I captured that thing some dogs the way they look at you yeah they're like well hi but you know whatever but then gradually the dog drags her out she has to look after the dog the dog puts her head on her knee and then actually she realizes that she loves her and she's helped her and she's brought her out and now the dog and has the, a name the dog and won't a... let her be alone and the dog is a mood machine yeah and so when she when she's crying the dog licks the salty inside of her hand i was pleased with all of this i have to say Suki the golden doodle I'm going back to read the dog parts. I feel like a, I've, maybe it's because I have cats. I don't know. But I'm going to go back and, and really examine the dog parts. But birds, as you say, are obviously huge. I mean, the wren, the wren, the title. And the wren is is a folkloric bird in Irish culture, a bird that actually betrays, isn't it? Well, I didn't dig into it too much. I am, you know, in the Irish tradition. And there are secret animals in all my books. <laughs> 
so there's a hare at the end of Actress. His little totemic animal is buried at the end of Actress. <laughs> and I think it goes back to the old money. The pennies had these beautiful, and the pennies also appear. There's a penny with a hen on the front. So when I was like five or six, you'd be given a penny to buy sweets. And it had this hen. So there's a hen, a hare, a salmon, a pig. These were very, very important to. So when you get the dogs and the pigs and the farm animals in the children's books, I also had that in my own childhood because my father grew up on a farm and we'd spent an amount of time there. But it's amazing how many animal references there are quite casually in Irish conversation. I'm feeling the PhDs massing as we speak, they'd be called things like Anne Enright's bestiary or something like that, <laughs> an examination of, yeah. They're all very domestic. I wouldn't even notice that they're there. They are slightly magical. I mean, they, they can be slightly magical. Or the, the hair and actress is certainly, you know, my own little voodoo. But there, there are no snakes, as we know, there are no snakes in Ireland. So the badger was very important. I, I took uh, the impulse from that from a, a really terrible story by Patrick Boyle called Melis Vulgaris, which is the name for the badger. But these things of, I remember my father driving along the motorway and there was a dead badger on the side. And he said, ah, poor Brock, he said. And so that was like, he was acknowledging the, the dead animal on the side of the road mm. in mm. a very kind of, it came from somewhere I thought quite old. Well, it's also obviously links to the poetry uh, and the poetic tradition that you're talking about and that you write yourself in this book. And this is something that is new to this book from your previous novels. It contains Phil's poetry, which you have written. And that's a mixture of a sort of personal meditation and nature poetry, but also these very, very old Irish poems that are much translated by the great poets of Ireland and you had to do them yourself I wonder what that was like well it was the best fun of any of anything I did it was the best fun well during lockdown this is also a lockdown book and I realize I haven't explained the rain at all but perhaps later so during lockdown, I was reading poems in the 18th century Irish or medieval Irish, and two of them were about dead birds. A bird that died of thirst because the ice, a very famous poem called The Yellow Bittern. The ice froze the lake and he couldn't have a drink. And another a lament for a lady's blackbird that had died. And it just came to me from such a distance over the centuries. There I was in 2020, in the spring of 2020, and these poets were mourning two tiny deaths and the smallness of the deaths made them more moving and I was amazed at their survival as pieces of text and very moved by the poetry so there is a loveliness to the bardic tradition in Ireland and I surprised myself by, by kind of knowing bits and pieces about it being a novelist you don't have to be an expert you can just pretend so I, I just had to apply my fake expertise to the 24 syllables of one poem or the lines of another poem. I, I tuffled out a couple of interesting ones um, that hadn't been much translated. The Calendar of Birds, I quite like. Kathleen Jamie did a version, but nobody else did. But then I did a poem, which is the oldest poem in Ireland, and every Irish poet has done it. So, I mean, there I was. I was comparing, you know, Heaney to Derek Mahon to Kieran Carson, all the Northern poets, and going back to the poem, I was in, immensely cheeky. 
that is the poem with 24 syllables only. So you mm. don't have, it's not like you have a run up to that, do you? I mean, you've got to, every every letter counts yeah. there. No, I didn't do it in 24 syllables. In some of the poetry, it was interesting to retain the kind of chewiness of the syllabic approach, the Irish approach. There's a lot of interweaving of syllables from line to line and a lot of compound or portmanteau words. So what you try and retain somehow is the impulse. I mean, it's, these are versions, they're not translations. But there are decisions you make that I think are in miniature fantastically good fun because they're important. So where you put, there's no title in the original of In Jane Beck, which is the Blackbird of Belfast Lock, according to some, of Lagan Lock, according to uh, others. So you're going to name the place and you're also going to, reveal whether the bird is a blackbird in the title or not until the second last line, which is what I delayed it until. And that felt like good, good narrative fun. I'm going to use the word fun a lot. <laughs> <laughs> pleasure. I mean, there was such, there's a huge amount of pleasure in, in all of it. And play, perhaps. Play, yeah. Yeah. I mean, do you think that poems like that and thinking I mean you mentioned the yellow bit in there that's an ancient poem but it goes right up to kind of occur in the work of you know a, a songwriter like Liam Clancy for example that these poems and fragments exist in Irish culture in a way that's kind of unusual they're unusually present I wonder I don't know you'd have to ask a Welshman really or a Welshwoman <laughs> yes yeah well maybe I should say the the Celtic identity perhaps I do not know I do not know I mean how vivid is Chaucer for you I mean I think the wife of Bath is still exists very strongly possibly only for English students but I don't know well and also listeners to this podcast because she is a frequent we've talked about the wife of Bath a lot have we not Lucy we have, we have. We've talked about the Great favourite here. You can buy Wife of Bath soap for okay. people at Christmas. <laughs> actually, I think the Wife of Bath, I don't think the words actually resonate in the culture particularly. I think the image maybe does. You know what I mean? Like, the yeah, the figure of her. But I don't know. I don't think many people can can tell you any lines from it. I know, but I wouldn't get sad now because you do have like Shakespeare. Okay? Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I'm not. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Good, good point. How much that is in everyday culture. I mean, he's he's been quoted all the time, everywhere. Yeah, 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 yeah. that's true. Yeah. There's a point you mentioned, I think, in your acknowledgements. That did, you, did you run after Paul Muldoon in an airport to ask him about the Yellow Bitten? <laughs> I know Paul from... For many years, when I was a student in UEA in 1986, he came and uh, he taught some poetry there before going to Princeton and staying in Princeton. So he didn't teach me, but he was very kind to the creative writing students and sort of took us out or, or fed us and generally was very hospitable and kind. So I know him for many decades. So there he was. We were both early for flights, both armed with many books. Mm. <laughs> So he was sitting at gate 410 or something. So we were chatting away and I just could not stop myself. I said, I have to show you this poem. Well, I mean, if somebody did that to me, 
<laughs> You'd be like, can I finish my sandwich first? Yeah, well, and, he was uh... basically a bit like, yes, I'm just a little bit like that. But um, and, <laughs> afterwards, I thought if someone did that to me, they would be completely non grata, you know, it's like, here's my short story. I'm really, excuse me, I'm sorry. <laughs> We're just chatting. I tell you, it all goes on in Dublin Airport, Lucy. Mm, There's a so... poet at every gate. <laughs> <laughs> That was Anne Enright talking about the Wren, the Wren. Still to come on the show, we go partying with Susan Sontag and George Steiner. And novelist Samantha Harvey takes us into space. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark. Next up, James Marcus joined us in November to talk about two literary titans and the small magazine that brought them together. One of the questions that I suppose always comes up when you're talking about these great stars and these great intellectual stars is the extent to which the mystique and the charisma play a part. And you make the point that Sontag had that Steiner less so, a wonderful phrase that you say. He was a, a sweater-wearing polymath with big glasses, you say. He wasn't <laughs> particularly personally charismatic. It was the force of his intellect. But it always makes me think, well, if you have an aura of genius, do people sometimes think you're a genius when perhaps you might not be? I think you can fool some of the people some of the time when it comes to the aura of genius. I don't think you can do it that easily for decades at a time. Mm. You're right, though, to point out that these two maestros in the book, Sontag and Steiner, were very different beasts, right? Sontag was an incredibly glamorous pop cultural icon. Even people not involved in the world of letters, even people who didn't read anything, would sort of know who she was and would recognize the rather glamorous photos that were taken of her throughout her entire life. I never met Steiner, but I did meet Sontag once. I spent a couple of hours interviewing her. She was incredibly warm and incredibly gracious, but the charisma pouring off her was unmistakable. Charisma is a hard quality to articulate exactly what it is, but when you are subject to it, you know what it is. There's a kind of ectoplasmic disturbance in the air, and that was definitely going on there. Uh, and it gives me a little bit of insight into how she maintained her friendship for so long with people like Boyers when she frequently really offended those people and mistreated them. I don't mean that the charisma was simply something she turned on and off as a kind of, you know, Band-Aid or bomb, but um, it made you want her to like you. <laughs> you know, you wanted to be in her presence. Steiner, as you say, doesn't seem to have had that. It was really 
the sheer force of his giant brain box and intellect that compelled people's respect. And the difference in those relationships is clear in the book. But Steiner also, although not a diva like Sontag, was capable of, as Boyer says, real brutality in his dealings with other people. And clearly Boyer's was subject to that as well. But somehow these two retained their... The title alone of the book, and, and you've just given us a, a clear idea that it wasn't always fun, the title being Maestros and Monsters. Tell us about what happened that one time when Boyer's introduced... Uh, Susan Sontag at an event as a great essayist, which, you know, you'd have thought somebody would be happy to hear that. Right. There's a moment, it may have been at one of these summer symposia, and Sontag had already attended many of them and had been introduced, I'm sure, very reverently by Boyers many, many times. But by now, we're getting into the era when Sontag had published The Volcano Lover and then in America, the, the two works of fiction, uh, late career works for her. And Boyers introduced her again, I'm sure reverently. He talked about her recent fiction, but he emphasized a bit more her role as a great American essayist. And when Sontag took the podium, she tore right into Boyers in front of the crowd and just said, Robert Boyers doesn't get it. After all these years, Robert Boyers doesn't understand who I am. I'm a fiction writer. I was just warming up with all of those uh, celebrated collections of essays. And um, I think it was quite cruel and kind of crazy to be doing this to an old friend. Immediately after the event was over, Peg Boyers, Robert Boyers' wife, who's been very much part of the whole Samagundi enterprise, evidently went up to Sontag and, and yelled at her and said, you must apologize to Robert immediately. I don't know if she did that, in fact, but he forgave her, of course, in the end, whether she apologized or not. And his quality of forgiveness and compassion is evident throughout the book. And I'm really not saying that he's a kind of punching bag. I'm saying there's actually a great generosity of spirit, which you needed, it seems, to have long friendships with these two people. I mean, I suppose one thing is he's sort of kind of been proved right. I mean, you know, posterity is is a long game. So this is only a, very quickly into, into Sontag's posterity. But we do not remember her as a novelist. I mean, in the same way, we do not think of her as a great novelist, but we do think of her as a great writer on culture, don't we? And in fact, Lucy, we were talking about her on the podcast only recently, weren't we? And remembering her staging of Godot in Sarajevo. You know, she did have this great force to make things happen and on the page, but not, I don't think, in fiction. No, I would agree with that. I say uh, in my review that, you know, geniuses are often surprisingly blind to the nature of their own gift. And she very much wanted to be remembered as a fiction writer. It's so clear from this book. It was so clear from the one time I, I, I met her and interviewed her that that was, that's how she saw herself. Everything else had been kind of a sublime warm up, And now she was ready to, you know, unveil her true talents. And I think you're right that her works of fiction are by no means negligible. She, You see a great talent at work on the page, but I think her work as broadly defined a cultural critic is going to far outlast her works of fiction. And so Boyers was correct. Boyers was astute on this occasion about her talents, but she just found it unforgivable, perhaps, that he saw that. Maybe she didn't want to hear it so much. He brought them together, didn't he, for a, what sounds like a, a sort of rather legendary six-hour dinner in Manhattan. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, he had developed these very warm friendships with both of them. They knew of each other. 
because they were both pretty prominent literary figures. And of course he wanted his great friends to come together and for them to have a lovely little, you know, menage of all of them, of mutual adoration going on. So he planned this dinner in New York City. Uh, Sontag said in advance, I, I'm really eager to meet your friend, George. I want to see if he's as intolerable as everybody says he is. <laughs> they were together for six hours, which is a lot of Sontag and Steiner. According to Boyers, it was really pretty good. The six hour summit was pretty good. But after that, they really could not stand each other, it seems. And it may have just been the force of repulsion involved in two extremely large egos. I mean, people who had a right to have large egos, but sometimes they cannot stand to be in the same room. And so their relations were very chilly. And there's a moment sort of late in the game, as I write about in my review, where they were all attending a, some sort of conference, intellectual conference in Holland, and Steiner refused to shake Sontag's hand, which seems to have been a specialty of his. And she called out to Boyers, who was nearby, saying, please come over and make him acknowledge me, please. And of course, as a reader, you're struck by the enormous childishness of all of this. I mean, they didn't have to like each other, but the kind of you know playground spats that these people would have with each other and with other uh, critics and writers, um, it all seems enormously childish, but it's also part of the game. I mean, we all recognize that great artists are often not particularly wonderful people, and this just bears that out. I realize I'm marking myself out as a sublime trivialist here, but I want to know so much more about the dinner. I mean, you know, was there anybody else there? What did they have to eat? What came <laughs> up in conversation? It's fascinating, isn't it? It's one of those things you're wild for there to be a kind of play about or something like that. No, you wish that Boyers had been wearing a wire the whole yes, time. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and, and, you know, he does seem to be a very Boswell-like, hyper-copious note-taker. And that's clear from this book, right? Because he's he reports many encounters and moments and conversations that took place a long time ago. And somehow it seems to fit with his literary personality. Because he is very Boswellian, right? In relationship to both of these people. He's a, a, a brilliant sidekick and acolyte. So my guess is he might have some pretty good notes from the mm -hmm. uh, Six Hour Summit, but he has not shared them in this book. He's discreet in some ways. Yes. Well, the book is a weird mixture of discretion and disclosure because he genuinely loves these two people. That is very clear. And that's a very appealing quality of the book. However, he did not want to write a hagiography. He did not want to just say they were, oh, these wonderful geniuses who, who just, you know, emanated wisdom. I mean, he wanted to do a somewhat warts and all portrait. And there's a good many warts in here. But you don't feel that he's doing it to do a hit job. I think he feels the chronicler's obligation to show you some of the difficulties. But um, the book does not have the sour atmosphere of a hit job. And I find that pretty impressive. It sounds much more charming and I suppose less like a, I don't know, a, a Tom Wolfe portrait way of kind of looking at them. But one thing I was really interested in, think of these two huge egos, obviously in the ecology of the magazine and also at these events, the symposia, there are clearly other people, other contributors to these public events and to the magazine itself. So what are they thinking about the kind of um, elevation of these two luminaries? There must be a sort of seething discontent. There always is in these sort of enterprises. Yes, I think that's true. 
because in some sense, Sontag and Steiner were the great stars of this particular scene. But there were other people there with perfectly adequately sized egos of their own. <laughs> I think they did okay. I mean, Boy Boyers did not actually enlist little names. Salma Gundi became prominent so fast that he managed to have pretty well-known people there right from the get-go. So I think those other people did okay. I would love to see some footage actually from these symposia. And I'm sure there are extensive audio recordings, but it would be priceless to see some, you know, footage from 1980, you know, James Walcott notes, Robert Boyers loved a good salmon colored tie. And I'm sure there's probably some other great clothing on display. I don't know, maybe there is some old sort of fluttery videotape available, but there were, again, lots of perfectly substantial egos there. And, and it, it was probably a kind of brownie in motion as they just banged into each other. That was James Marcus talking about Maestros and Monsters by Robert Boyers. And finally, we were thrilled to be joined by novelist Samantha Harvey, whose new novel, Orbital, imagines life on the soon-to-be-decommissioned International Space Station. As a terrible geographer myself, I just, there was so much geography in this and it was so beautiful <laughs> and so precise. And, you know, you they're watching the, the thing come up and they say over the range of mountains, I can't even name any of the mountains. And you, you conjure it up so beautifully and so precisely. And I wouldn't normally ask, oh, how did you prepare for the book or something? But I feel like I've got this image of you sitting with a globe, you know, <laughs> moving it around and seeing what you can see. How on earth did you conjure it up so precisely and so beautifully I have a I don't have a globe but I do have a huge world map on the wall right in front of me and I have looked at it so much and I've also looked at footage from space so there is a lot of footage that you can you can look at from is there that you can watch yeah. that happening okay. there's yeah, a so. live stream Lucy I only know this because I read Samantha talking about it and then I went on to it and it was dark when there was nothing happening but I will persist but that just seems amazing to me that you can see what they see it's constant isn't it yeah it's magnificent and this is kind of the starting point of my book I guess I would find myself looking at those videos um just on YouTube or on the NASA website just thinking this is magnificent what we can see just sitting here at my desk I can orbit the earth it's incredible that the technology has brought us that why is nobody writing about this this is so moving so extraordinary and I, I wanted to kind of capture that in in words if I could I wanted to see what words could do with the beauty of those images if words could come anywhere close so a lot of my precision or attempted precision around that was from looking at those videos and then looking at the world map, I mapped my orbits onto the map on my wall so I could see exactly where they were at any given time. And there's an orbit map in the book, which I drew up. Um, yes, yeah, I couldn't you... understand it, I'm afraid. I didn't know. It's quite techie, isn't it? <laughs> well, I understood it more after I'd read the book yeah. I looked at it at the beginning because it's there it is right at the very beginning and I thought oh that's not for me I can only do words I, do, I don't understand what's <laughs> going on here and then I did get it a bit more yeah. so you know it is you know one doesn't read this book a novel like this we're trying to understand about consciousnesses but I did actually learn things and that's never a bad thing in a novel is it 
Well, and, and I did too. I mean, I, I have always been interested in geography, I suppose, but because I've had, it's quite a lot better now, but because I've had insomnia for such a long time, one of the things I do at night to help me sleep is I list world countries and I can, I can list every country in the world and I can list every American state. And, you know, I, I've just kind of used that as a way of helping me get to sleep. And there's something about that containment of the earth or sort of holding the whole earth in my mind, which is what I've been trying to do for the last three years writing this book. Um, it's incredibly comforting to me. I think it can seem that the world is so sort of disparate and broken and boundaried and ill at ease with itself. And when you can sort of look at it as a whole, either by just listing all of the countries in it or, or by watching an orbit video or writing about an orbit, I find it incredibly consoling that you know, we, we do live on a small, boundaryless planet. And there is a way of seeing humanity as one. And it sounds uh, hopelessly idealistic, but I, I find that a great comfort. When I was trying to think about how to describe it, in the end, I thought... If you had to put it in a box, which, of course, what's the point of putting it in a box? But I was trying to make myself. It felt like eco-fiction, like a book to remind us about the beauty of the earth and its existence as one system, not as disparate sort of warring factions. Yeah, I think it probably is eco-fiction. And I, I didn't set out to write something that was directly about climate change, but you can't look at the earth or talk about the earth without acknowledging the human impact that we have on it so I think by default it is eco-fiction and I and maybe more broadly when I first conceived of this novel I, I thought of it as space pastoral I wanted to write I wanted to write a month in the country in space <laughs> <laughs> and in fact the novel was set over a month initially and then I I realized that wasn't working because I had to keep dealing with you know, every day I had to keep dealing dinner times and I was getting bored of writing about them. Um, and I thought, look, actually, a much better way of talking about the, the themes of the book, which, you know, one of which has to be time and the way it's exploded and fragmented in space is to take one exploded day and write about that. that seemed, and then once I decided that, the whole thing just kind of fell into place um, after a lot of, of striving and false starts. I think that it is eco-fiction, but it's as much just uh, nature writing about space. And I say pastoral, I guess, because that evokes a sense of nostalgia. And I think when we look at the earth, there is, firstly, there's a sense of nostalgia around the, well, for me, <laughs> around the ISS and, and the fact that soon it will be deorbited. And, and that does mark at the end of an era in space travel, which has been cooperative and peaceful and state-driven, not driven by private entities and corporations. And I think that era is coming to an end and, and we might be the worst for it, but then I'm no expert on this. It just doesn't feel good to me what's happening in space. Now it feels like more of the same of what we're doing on Earth. We're just kind of ransacking space in the way that we've ransacked the Earth. So there's that sense of nostalgia for an era that's that's passing in space, but also a nostalgia for, for what we're losing on the earth itself. So you can't really write about the beauty of the earth anymore without writing about loss 
and to some extent grief, which I, I guess goes hand in hand with writing about climate change. So it is all of that, but it also, um, I wanted it to be about just joy, about beauty and joy and rapture, because that's what I feel when I look at the earth from space. I feel those things and I wanted to try to put them into words. That was Samantha Harvey and her novel Orbital is out now. have time for this week our thanks go to Anne Enright James Marcus and Samantha Harvey and thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast produced by Charlotte Pardy we'll be back next week for our first episode of 2024 but for now from Lucy Dallas and from me Alex Clark goodbye and a very happy new year <laughs>